Hello and welcome to the commentary for Lesson 366, Hosea chapters 3 and 4. So in verse 1, the Lord says to Hosea, Go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. So again, we see the life of Hosea and the things, the events that happen in his life, God is using as prophecy for Israel, which is just beyond my wildest imagination. But um, I do want to point out a couple interesting things. First of all, my study Bible said that people had heard God's words many times, but they felt the impact of those words when they saw them acted out in Hosea's merciful love for his wife. Because it goes against human nature, right? If if a man or a, or a woman, for that matter, is cheated on by their spouse, it's not our immediate go-to to respond with forgiveness and mercy. We get defensive, we lash out, we um, attack each other, we feel hurt. Um, there's definitely a splintered relationship, a separation um, that arguably could never be fully repaired without God. And it so perfectly demonstrates Hosea's mercifulness to Gomer perfectly illustrates God's merciful love for Israel. And it's really hard for them to get a grasp on this, but it's sort of like an object lesson, right? We um, Sunday school teachers get an object lesson. Sometimes we have a hard time fully grasping a concept that God is trying to teach us in the Bible. And so we have object lessons to illustrate it in a way that we can understand. So it is interesting that Hosea's life is that object lesson. Verse 2 says, So I bought her back for 15 pieces of silver and five bushels of barley and a measure of wine. Then I said to her, you must live in my house for many days and stop your prostitution. During this time, you will not have sexual relations with anyone, not even with me. So it's like a cleansing period, and that period will show Israel um, that they will go a long time without a king or prince and without sacrifices, sacred pillars, priests, or even idols. But afterward, the people will return and devote themselves to the Lord their God and to David's descendant, their king. So even that time frame of waiting where he buys her back, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more in just a second, where he buys her back and goes through that cleansing period or what have you, even that is symbolic of Israel's um, relationship with God. So, but let's think about for a second that 15 pieces of silver, because that is significant, Okay. I found something online. It was written by a professor of the Old Testament, um, Northern Baptist Seminary, Claude Mariottini. Mariottini? Anyways, he says, The price Hosea paid for his wife was significant. The reason for the payment was because she probably had become the legal property of another man, or because she was being redeemed from service as a cult prostitute. Now we know that as part of Baal worship and some of these other false religions that the Israelites have fallen into, 
Um, there were prostitutes in the temple. So we don't know exactly what her story was, what kind of a prostitute she was, or how she fell into it exactly, but it was definitely a prevalent problem in their land, something that was happening everywhere. Um, and as for the price that he paid for his wife, the amount seems to correspond to the price paid for a slave according to the law of the gorging ox. I know that's interesting, so let's turn to it. Um, it's in Exodus chapter 21, verse 32. And it's at this point in Exodus, they're talking about um, fair treatment of slaves and cases of personal injury. And basically, they were kind of going through, if this happens, this is what's required. And it's chapters and chapters of this. But anyways, so here it goes through verse 32. If an ox gores a slave, either male or female, the animal's owner must pay the slave's owner 30 silver coins, and the ox must be stoned. So in Exodus, we see a description of a slave's value of 30 silver coins. But this is interesting. Let's go to Leviticus 27, verse 4, um, where it talks about redeeming gifts offered to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. If anyone makes a special vow to dedicate someone to the Lord by paying the value of that person, here is the scale of values to be used. A man between the ages of 20 and 60 is valued at 50 shekels of silver as measured by the sanctuary shekel. Verse 4, a woman of that age is valued at 30 shekels of silver. And by the way, ladies, if that seems a little offensive to you that men were worth 50 um, shekels of silver and women only 30, then... I want to remind you that Jesus, his price was 30 shekels of silver as well, because Judas betrays him later on, we'll read in the New Testament for 30 pieces of silver. So there's that. <laughs> and then it goes through boys and girls and their values. But verse eight says, if you desire to make such a vow, but cannot afford to pay the required amount, take the person to the priest. He will determine the amount for you to pay based on what you can afford. So let's assume that Hosea was adhering to this biblical standard in Leviticus, which would make sense. He was a prophet of God. So he would have gone to the priest and he would have said, I don't have 30 pieces of silver. How can we make this work? And so was the bushels of barley and the measure of wine, was that intended to bridge that gap between the 15 pieces of silver and the 30 pieces of silver that a woman was worth and that a slave was even worth? It just doesn't seem like bushels of barley and a measure of wine would be equal in value to that 15 pieces of silver. So it's an interesting th thought. It's either that it all added up um, per deal with the priest to an equivalent amount, or it could signify that she was of less value than even a slave. That seems to make some sense when you consider that God, he loves 
us so much, even in our deep sin nature, even, um, you know, we can never do anything that's so horrible that God cannot redeem us and restore us. So maybe that's symbolic, the fact that she was worth a lot less than even a slave. Okay, so just the idea that he was buying his wife back after she had been unfaithful is pretty phenomenal. It makes you wonder how she responded, right, to his act. When he went to buy her back, she must have been surprised to see him because no one would expect that, right? And that's what God does. He, he gives us the ability to do the opposite of what our human condition would have us do. So here's what my study Bible says. How did she respond to Hosea's sacrificial faithfulness? We aren't told. After Hosea redeemed her, she isn't mentioned again. Her final appearance in the book leads to hopeful silence. If she responded to Hosea's love, they built a life together. Probably the closest we come to feeling what Gomer felt are those times when we act unfaithfully toward God, yet he continues to faithfully lavish us with his love. Gomer's shameful story turns out to be a thinly veiled version of our story. We know Gomer better than we might think at first, for she was what we are, and that is just sinners offered overwhelming grace. I love that. In another part of my study Bible, it says the people found it easy to condemn Hosea's wife for her adultery. They were not so quick, however, to see that they had been unfaithful to God. So sometimes that happens. We're easy to, it's easy for us to identify it in someone else, but it takes a while for us to realize that we are guilty of the same. Um, It may look a little different. It may present itself a little different, but it all comes from the same place. So then we go to chapter four in Hosea, and it's the Lord's case against Israel. So this is his warning through Hosea to the people of Israel. Hear the word of the Lord, O people of Israel. The Lord has brought charges against you, saying, There is no faithfulness, no kindness, no knowledge of God in your land. And it goes into detail of exactly all of the horrible, detestable things they have done. They make vows and break them. They kill, steal, commit adultery. There's violence everywhere, murder. Um, And it says, that's why all this trouble is happening for you. And the priests are starting to say, yeah, our people are terrible. Look at them. And I love how verse four says, don't point your finger at someone else and try to pass the blame. My complaint, you priests, is with you. So if they were feeling high and mighty about all this and looking down at their congregation and pointing their finger at them, God tells these priests through Hosea, make no mistake, the problem is you. God will punish both the priests along with the people. He says, verse 8, when the people bring their sin offerings, the priests get fed. So the priests are glad when the people sin. Not only that, but something else I read said that if there was more food than what the priests could eat from all this sin offerings, then they would turn around and sell it. So that would help them materialistically, that would raise their status in the community. Very selfish, greedy tendencies that we're seeing from priests, no less. 
And then verse 9 points out, yes, of course, and what the priests do, the people also do. They set the standard. So if they're falling to sin, then it's natural for the people to go, oh, well, they do it. So obviously it's not that bad. And it seems that they've sort of gotten their religion all twisted because they've been mingling with these idol worshipers. And even though when we skip down to verse 15, it says, Though you, Israel, are a prostitute, may Judah avoid such guilt. Do not join the false worship at Gilgal or Bethaven, even though they take oaths there in the Lord's name. So they're still talking about God, and maybe they think they're serving God, but they're doing twisty things. It's almost like being a Christian but believing in New Age stuff and going to a psychic healer, right? That doesn't make sense. You're combining two different things. Um, and they are not to be combined. So if we back up to verse 12, it says they ask a piece of wood for advice. They think a stick can tell them the future. Their longing after idols has made them foolish. So they have become a prostitute. Again, it, it kind of compares adultery and prostitution to um, how Israel has turned against God and is focusing now on their new obsession, which is this idol worship. When it talks about a piece of wood and they think a stick can tell them of the future, I assumed maybe that was referring to the Asherah poles, but my study Bible says that the stick or divining rod was a way of attempting to tell the future. So it would essentially be like a black eight ball that we shake up and has little liquid in it and we go, you know, are we going to have a good day today? Shake it. And it says, yes, absolutely. And then, of course, God's warning to Judah is, hey, do not follow what Israel is doing because they are going to be punished. Verse 17 says, leave Israel alone because she is married to idolatry. Don't associate with them. Verse 19 finishes off this chapter by saying, so a mighty wind will sweep them away. Their sacrifices to idols will bring them shame. And of course, that mighty wind is referring to the Assyrian invasion, which we know will be coming. One thing I forgot to say about the priests is that these priests, I mean, think about it. They had forgotten their spiritual heritage and they basically sold out to Baal. And they're promoting idol worship and ritual prostitution. That's all part of Baal worship. So it's very appropriate, this prostitution as a metaphor in the relationship of Hosea and Gomer is very appropriate when you consider that Baal worship, part of that whole thing was prostitution. So this is a real life object lesson for these people that they will get because they see it all around them. And what Hosea chapter four tells us is that Israel's not going to escape punishment here. God will most definitely punish the people of Israel. But Judah could escape that punishment if they refused to follow Israel's example. So that's good. There's a chart in my study Bible that I want to share with you. I like how it breaks it down. It says that spiritual adultery and physical adultery are alike in many ways, and both are dangerous. God was disappointed with his people because they had committed spiritual adultery against him, as Gomer had committed physical adultery against Hosea. 
So I'm going to read through the parallels, and then it points out the danger of that specific parallel. So the first parallel, it says, both spiritual and physical adultery are against God's law. The danger of that parallel is that when we break God's law in full awareness of what we're doing, our hearts become hardened to the sin and our relationship with God is broken. Okay, another parallel. Both spiritual and physical adultery begin with disappointment and dissatisfaction, either real or imagined, with an already existing relationship. Good example of that is, you know, we get disenfranchised with God because we don't like how he allows bad things to happen to good people. That can trip us up and affect our faith journey. The danger there, according to my study Bible, says the feeling that God disappoints can lead you away from him. Feelings of disappointment and dissatisfaction are normal and when endured will pass. So that's a truth that we don't like. We feel disenfranchised from God, but we need to work through it. We don't give up and turn towards sin and other idols. We got to keep trying to make sense of it and work through that difficulty with God. Another parallel. Both spiritual and physical adultery begin with diverting affection from one object of devotion to another. Yeah, think about a spouse who's cheating They're no longer sleeping with their husband or wife. They've decided to focus all their attentions on maybe a coworker or someone of the opposite sex that they're building a relationship with that person. Even just going to lunch, you know, that's why it's so important for Christians not to find themselves slipping into those seemingly innocent lunch, like a little private, quiet lunch with the opposite sex. It's just not appropriate because it seems harmless. And maybe you don't have the intention of starting an affair, but it can whittle away and it can happen and it can sneak up on you before you know it. It's it's so important that we just don't even allow ourselves to be in that compromising situation. Um, And then the danger, as written here, it says, the diverting of our affection is the first step in the blinding process that leads into sin. Another parallel, both spiritual and physical adultery involve a process of deterioration. It is not usually an impulsive decision. The process is dangerous because you don't always realize it's happening until it's too late. Okay, and finally, the last parallel it gives, it says both spiritual and physical adultery involve the creation of a fantasy about what a new object of love is can do for you. That's the whole grass is always greener on the other side, right? I'm telling you, it's not greener. It may be a different shade of green, (laughs) right? This say, you know, I'm irritated because my husband is a slob or he leaves his, you know, dirty clothes on the floor. And this man over here looks so nice because he's so neat and tidy. What would that be like? Well, if you change partners to the guy who's neat and tidy all the time, who he's going to have other problems that you never even thought of. I heard an explanation one time that you'd be exchanging 80% good for 20% good because your, your husband is 80% awesome, <laughs> 20% what you complain about, right? You see that 20% in someone else, you exchange, you make that exchange, and I'm telling you, all you have is that 20%, you've lost the 80%. I forget where I heard that, but I love that example. Um, 
And and so going back to this parallel, it says the danger is says such fantasy creates an unrealistic expectation of what a new relationship can do and only leads to disappointment in all existing and future relationships. So it makes sense, this correlation between an unfaithful wife and an unfaithful Israel. And this was an object lesson in a way that they could understand it, that they could wrap their brain around it. Uh, We are not as smart as God. And so sometimes he's got to show us what he's talking about because we don't hear what he's saying. So that's really it for today. I hope you all have a great day and I will talk to you soon.